Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, charting a new course, how shifting our approach to safety culture can help us tackle serious injuries and fatalities, sponsored by Cority. My name is Kevin Drewley. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health magazine, and I will be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. We hope you all are safe and well amid the evolving COVID-19 pandemic. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I wanna go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily, necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the Send button. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speaker. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey that will appear on a separate screen. I will let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. You may also receive a link in a post-event email. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speaker today is Sean Baldry, a product marketing manager with Cordy, who brings more than 15 years of experience in occupational safety and health as part of the construction, mining, and manufacturing industries. In addition, Sean is a Canadian registered safety professional. Sean, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Thanks a lot, Kevin, and uh, good afternoon, good morning, everyone, depending on uh, where you're calling in from. So I think it's fair to say that since we've all been rather consumed with everything COVID-19 over the past few months, many people may not have realized that this past April, the world celebra uh, celebrated a particularly grim anniversary. It was 10 years ago in April of 2010 that an explosion rocked BP's Deepwater Horizon oil platform op operating the Gulf of Mexico that instantly claimed the lives of 11 workers and resulted in arguably the largest oil spill in US history. And yet, one of the aspects I still find intriguing uh, about this event, even a decade later, is this, that on the morning of the disaster, senior officials at BP and Transocean, which was the, cop uh, the contractor operating the rig, had arrived at the platform to celebrate a safety milestone. The site had operated for seven consecutive years without a lost time injury. And yet, just 12 hours later, that same platform was now burning and falling into the sea, taking 11, pe 11 people with it. And for me, this contradiction in safety success with Deepwater Horizon kind of alluded to a larger trend in industry, that while rates of reportable occupational injuries have been declining and, and have declined steadily in many nations over the past two decades, the rates of serious injuries and fatalities, or, or SIFs, have decreased at a much slower rate, in, in some cases remaining flat or even rising over that same period. And you know, we've since discovered that part of the reason for this trend was that organizations and, and how organizations were approaching incident prevention was somewhat flawed. You know, many of us were taught that you know, addressing lower order events at the base of the safety pyramid, uh, by doing that, we would address the same underlying causes that contribute to the more severe events at the peak. But in reality, we've discovered that only about 20% of those lower order events even have the potential to result in, in SIFs. So addressing the other 80% had virtually no effect on whether or not the SIF would eventually occur. So unsurprisingly, 
organizations who started to discover this started shifting their programs in ways that would enable them to, to better identify uh, incidents with that SIP potential within their operations. But for me, th there's a question that we need to ask, and that's what about safety culture? What elements of safety culture need to be shifted as well to support SIF prevention? Are certain elements of safety culture more critical than others in determining SIF prevention success? And, and that's really what I wanted to talk about today. So what I'd like to do today is explore this idea of how safety culture influences SIF prevention success. And, and to do so, I thought we'd start by briefly reviewing what we know about SIFs and some of the key elements that we should be considering when we're building our SIF prevention programs. Afterward, I want to review a few key ideas uh, about how we can shift our safety culture in ways that we can help support our SIP prevention efforts. So particularly, I want to talk about measuring success, learning from failure, and controlling bias in how we make decisions. And since Cordy is a software company, uh, we'll look at a few ways throughout the presentation where technology could help support these culture shifts to ensure that you know, they're effective at, at arriving at the ultimate goal, which is the reduction of serious injuries and fatalities. So uh, without further ado, let's get started. Let's just talk a little bit about preventing SIPs and, and where we are today. So we know that we can't expect to reduce SIPs simply by focusing on addressing minor incidents at the base of the pyramid, as we talked about, simply because the factors that underlie the two incident types, those minor events and those major events, are fundamentally different. And as a result, much of an organization's ability to prevent SIFs is really dependent on its ability to identify those factors or precursors that give those events a higher potential to, to result in those serious and life-threatening consequences. And, and in fact, in a recent paper, the Campbell Institute suggested or, or defined SIF precursors as having three specific aspects. The first was that it involved a task or situation involving high risk. So working at heights or entering a confined space would invariably be those high-risk situations. The second would involve critical control measures, what we would often call life-saving measures, uh, that are designed to protect workers from the risks of the, these high-risk activities are often missing, they're inadequate, or, or they're not followed. And finally, you know, there's a condition that exists that the, if the work were allowed to continue with the absence or, or the ineffectiveness of those controls, then a serious and, and fatal injury would, would be much more likely. And, and certainly while the, the identification of SIF precursors is a critical element in reducing you know, our, our, our potential for serious uh, injuries and fatalities, there are other elements that businesses need to consider when, when we're formulating that comprehensive SIF prevention strategy. And I, I've listed a few here, they're certainly not comprehensive at all, but ones that I thought were, were particularly important. So the first you know, deals with management support. So like any initiative that we have in, in occupational health and safety, strong executive sponsorship is absolutely critical to ensure we have the appropriate resources to achieve our, our eventual SIF prevention goals. The, the second involves life-saving rules. So these are the rules that, that are often absent when we look at SIFs, but, but we need organizations to define what critical control measures are needed to, to be able to manage those common risks that employees encounter that in turn could increase their exposure to, to SIFs. The third involves training and education. You know, all employees need to be trained in SIFs, what SIF precursors are, their life-saving rules, as well as the expectations and processes that, that are necessary for reporting events to enable the organization to identify those incidents with SIF potential with, with greater expediency. And finally, I would argue that metrics and, and data analysis are particularly important. This is where organizations need to define how they will collect and analyze SIF-related data 
to enable them to, to, man, or to, to measure the, the effectiveness of their SIP prevention efforts and really to determine how data will help guide their decision making in determining priorities or where, where to allocate resources. But again, I, I keep coming back to this idea of, of what effect does an organization's safety culture have in its ability to achieve uh, this SIF prevention strategy or, or their ultimate goals in, in reducing these serious and, and fatal events. And when I was thinking about this, three specific questions came to mind. The first concerned reporting. You know, we know that reporting is key to SIF, to identifying SIF precursors, but what do you do when your workers won't report? You know, what, what changes do we have to make within our culture to enable uh, reporting to, to be more, more fluid and, and more accessible? The second involved uh, this idea of learning from mistakes. We know that learning from mistakes is a key to reducing SIFs, but how, really how open is your culture to exploring and critically analyzing its failures? A lot of organizations aren't really open to that. And finally, how, you know, it really concerns how we make decisions. Any risk in a SIF prevention strategy um, or there is a risk, I should say, within a SIF prevention strategy, strategy in that we end up spending our time and money on things that don't really have an impact on SIFs. So how well are we using our data uh, to ensure that we're making the right decisions and we're overcoming any sort of inherent bias that we have uh, within our organization or just culturally? So I, I want to spend a little bit of time on, on exploring and answering these three questions. And I, I thought the first uh, thing that we could do is we could we could uh, explore this idea of reporting. But before we do so, let's return to this uh, to the story of Deepwater Horizon for a minute. Now, what many people don't realize is is that it was discovered during the investigation of the disaster that Transocean had conducted an anonymous survey with the rig workers a month prior to the event. And the survey found that roughly 50% of the employees that, that, were, were, uh, that were included in the survey were reluctant to raise safety concerns to management out of their fear of reprisal. So in effect, their fear of being blamed for adverse events was a strong incentive not to report. In fact, it was stronger than the fear of actually being harmed by, by whatever they were keeping under their belts. And you know, we've said before that cr a critical step in SIF prevention involves the prompt identification of incidents with SIF potential. But our ability to detect SIF potential is contingent upon the willingness of our employees to report events when they occur. And the way that an organization responds to bad news can greatly influence whether workers are willing to bring those issues forward in the first place. You know, organizations that respond to negative news with anger, frustration, ridicule, or, or blame uh, all but assure themselves that those workers will probably think twice about bringing that issue up uh, the next time around. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is how can organizations create that re reporting culture that we know is necessary for SIF prevention? And I'm going to offer two ideas. The first involves changing the way that we measure safety success, and the second involves how we make reporting easier for the frontline individual. So first off, you know, I, th I think we need to acknowledge that most organizations measure safety success by the absence of incidents or the absence of failure. Essentially for them, safety success happens when nothing happens. You know, when we don't have events, that's a good day. And we know that businesses place enormous emphasis on, on you know, their injury frequency rates as a gauge of how well their safety program is performing. And in case, and, and this was my personal experience, performance incentives for managers and, and individuals within the organization are often even tied to this rate. So there's a huge emphasis, whether implicit or implied, uh, that having events is a bad thing. 
So, you know, and, and I, I put this graphic on the left-hand side of the screen to really ask a question to, to everyone is, how many of you have a sign like this in your workplace? And really to, to question yourself and ask, you know, what message is that really sending? Is it really sending the right message or is it sending a hidden message that we might not be aware of? So in, in an environment where there's so much emphasis placed on keeping rates low, you know, we need to ask ourselves, why would anyone volunteer to be the person to bring up the issue uh, that's going to negatively impact that number? And, and certainly if management responds negatively when, uh, when those events in fact are reported, we only make the incentive to, to not report that much stronger. Oh, sorry about that. So I, I think a question that we need to ask ourselves is, you know, but what if we could find a way to measure safety success differently in a way that would encourage reporting. So I, I want to give you a, 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 tell you a little story or a little example I heard recently that I, I thought hit this mark beautifully. So imagine that you're driving to the airport. And if you arrive at the airport without getting into a crash, were you safe? Now, if we measure safety success by the absence of incidents, then we'd probably say yes. But we all know that just because I didn't crash doesn't mean I was safe. It, it doesn't show whether I was actively controlling all the risks while driving in such a way that I've reduced my potential for, for an incident. In fact, it doesn't tell me whether I was safe while I was driving. But if I instead decided to measure my capacity to drive safely, I would probably pay attention to a few different metrics. You know, in that case, I might consider, was I driving at a speed that was correct for the road conditions? Did I ensure that my tires had the appropriate tread? Were my light signals and gauges functioning properly? Did I give myself enough time to get to the airport without rushing? Uh, was I rested and not overly fatigued? And by redefining how we measure safety in this way, we not only shift our attention to managing elements that have a direct impact on, on our potential to have that negative event, but we also shift our perspective of the incident from something that's negative to be avoided and, and hidden at all costs to something from which we can learn. And that's really, that's really the, the key point here. And, and certainly by selecting the right indicators to measure this capacity to manage risk, we're more able to directly affect the things that allow SIFs to occur, those SIF, uh, those SIF precursors. And in the sense, you know, I might select indicators that measure uh, the percent of, of training completed relative to the task, that high-risk task that I'm engaged in. I might measure the, the percentage or, or the number of task observations completed that ensures that people are following uh, the things that they need to. I might look at proactive equipment inspections to make sure the equipment is of a condition that enables that job to be done safely, or I even might measure the days uh, to close corrective actions. Now, all of these indicators are directly influenceable, and they help us to identify gaps in our program capacity that could create those conditions for those SIF precursors to occur. And, and certainly, by leveraging technology, we have an opportunity to not only simplify our data collection, you know, by allowing frontline employees to, you know, submit observations, their inspections, their tasks, their updates directly from the field using a mobile device so they can update uh, that information in real time, but we also increase our visibility of our data. And that enables us to you know, more quickly detect when indicators are trending in the wrong direction and then assign and track completion of those actions created to address that negative trend. So there's certainly uh, an opportunity there that, that we can really leverage technology for, for an immediate benefit. 
And lastly, and before we move on to the next point, you know, we talked earlier about uh, creating, certainly how do we make changes to the way that we measure success to create that reporting culture. But the, the other side of reporting is in order to build that strong reporting culture, we need to make reporting as easy as possible. You know, even in environments where workers don't fear reporting adverse outcomes, processes that make reporting too difficult or overly administrative will reduce the reduce the chance that frontline workers will share data that is vital for SIF prevention efforts. And, you know, for, for us at, at Cordy, where we're operating in the software space, you know, we've seen a, a, an absolute explosion both internally and, and, and within the, the industry at large, a huge explosion in mobile EHS applications um, where organizations can, can leverage digital mobile tools to, to simplify their event reporting process. So in this case, when an event occurs, a worker would be able to open an app on their device, record the relevant data, in some cases attach uh, photos, uh, or even identify SIF precursors or conduct a SIF assessment depending on how the solution is configured, which the business can later use to assess that incident's relative priority and what they need to do about it next. And certainly by leveraging some of the, the other features within the solution, such as you know, automated notifications that can be configured on the back end, we also improve our ability to share those lessons, to share that information quickly across the business. And that certainly helps facilitate organizational learning, which again can be input into our, our SIP prevention efforts for, uh, for a lot of benefit. So, you know, beyond reporting uh, or, or beyond building that reporting culture, organizations also need to consider how they approach learning from failure. And, and that's what I, I wanna talk about next. So one of the most interesting books I've read recently is called Black Box Think Thinking by Matthew Syed. And, and I've given you a, a, a view of the, the book cover on the left. So the book offers a very interesting story about the B-17, which is pictured on the right. Now the B-17 was an aircraft that was used heavily by the US Army to conduct strategic bombing campaigns over Germany in World War II. And in the book, the book recounts a story where during the 1940s, the B-17 was involved in a series of seemingly inexplicable runway accidents. And at first the, the army was convinced that pilots were, were simply lacking situational awareness when landing. So they were focusing a lot of their efforts on improving, employ, uh, improving pilot training, I should say, as a means to reduce incidents. But when the incidents failed to decrease, the army turned to a psychologist to try to study the crashes and, and provide recommendations on how these events could be avoided. And what they found was that these crashes had less to do with pilot error and more to do with system design. So specifically, they found that the levers that controlled the aircraft's landing gear were not only the exact shape of the levers that controlled the wing flaps, but they were also positioned side by side on the instrumentation panel in the cockpit. And the design wasn't necessarily a problem when the pilots were flying in ideal conditions, but when they were attempting to make a difficult landing or a landing under pressure, the pilots were inadvertently pulling the wrong lever. So instead of retracting the wing flaps to reduce airspeed on approach, they were actually retracting the wheels and causing the plane to belly flop on the runway. Uh, and, and obviously the, the, the consequences that are associated with that. And as a result of the investigation, the US Army modified the two control levers so they could look differently. And in doing so virtually, the, the accidents disappeared overnight. So you're probably asking yourselves, what does this have to do with SIFs? I think what we need to acknowledge is that all humans, all of us, have an inherent bias when we look at error. Specifically, we tend to overestimate personality factors and we underestimate situational factors 
to try to explain another person's observed behavior. So in other words, we focus more on why a person you know, why a person involved in, in an event didn't act the way that they were supposed to, and we pay much less attention to the circumstances that existed that may have influenced why that person acted that way in the first place. And, and certainly earlier, when we mentioned that SIF precursors involved highly hazardous situations where management controls are either absent, ineffective, or, or not complied with, um, I'd argue that many companies when they investigate SIF precursors or they investigate these, these serious events, they tend to focus more on whether or not the worker complied with the controls and less about whether the, the controls were effective in the first place. And I say this because in the vast majority of cases, and, and this is borne out you know, in a lot of research studies, that when workers commit errors, they're generally unintentional. And they often result in how a system or process is designed, which creates an error trap. So it creates this unfavorable condition that increases the probability of that error in that particular situation, much like pilots pulling the wrong lever when they're attempting to make a, a high stress landing. It's just, you know, they lose focus um, and, and just inadvertently hit the wrong lever. Those error traps uh, in, in a lot of cases create, uh, create the majority of our incidents. But I think when we look at work, we need to acknowledge that, you know, workers live at that sharp end of the stick, so in closest proximity to the hazard. And though they, they live at that sharpest end, they generally exert the least amount of power in defining how that work should be performed. So in other words, the individuals with the most knowledge of how the work should be performed safely are often, often have the least say in how those risks ought to be controlled. And I think that's because there's often a disconnect between how we imagine work is done and how work is actually done. And unless we, you know, unless we as organizations go to the actual people that do the work and ask them how the work needs to be done in, you know, certainly in, in the context of, of how they know it needs to be done, what happens is we end up recommending controls that look great on paper, but which don't really address risk or which create those error traps that in effect make serious events and fatalities much more likely. And I think this is where learning teams come in. A learning team is simply a facilitated conversation between those that do the work and those that design the work to enable them to share intelligence that, that helps the organization identify where errors can occur in a system and then identify the measures to improve the system to prevent those errors. You know, together, it's the workers and the designers collaborating to design those management controls that are appropriate to the nature of the hazards, but which do not create those error traps that make SIFs more likely. But what, what's most important, and I guess much where what makes learning teams much, much more effective is that it creates that blame-free environment that helps businesses explore those failures and really enable them to drive down to the real root causes of problems. You know, in a lot of cases, that, that really frank and open transparent discussion uh, between those that do the work and those that design the work can't really happen because there's this, this belief that we can't, we can't talk about failures either individually because we fear how people will perceive us if we admit to problems or, or the, the organization just is, is not structured in a way that, that does this. But in a lot of organizations that, that have uh, adopted learning cultures or learning teams, uh, it's been really, really effective at reducing SIF precursors more sustainably. And, and certainly, we're, we're back to this idea of technology. And, and how, you know, a, a good question to ask ourselves is how can technology support 
the development of a learning culture. You know, as mentioned, learning teams provide that environment where all worker par uh, workplace parties uh, can dive deep into SIP uh, potential events to identify those precursors and the, the root causes that allow those precursors to exist. And in a lot of cases, advanced root cause analysis solutions uh, available through software provides you know, this, this process, it, it allows that process to occur in a much more streamlined and effective fashion. And what, what I've done here on the screen is just give you an example, a workflow of sorts to help show how technology could assist uh, not only in identifying root causes, but it could assist the, uh, assist the conversations that learning teams are having to enable them to really arrive uh, more quickly at those problems that they're facing uh, to be able to resolve them in a, in a more sustainable way. And then in doing so, um, enable them to, to, to really build in uh, the, the improvements that are, that are necessary to be able to uh, resolve serious uh, incidents of fatalities with, with a lot more uh, speed and effectiveness. So on the left-hand side of the screen, this workflow could uh, simply start with uh, an individual who reports a SIF potential event uh, using a tablet or mobile device of sorts. And that would trigger a workflow uh, within a, a selected solution, a root cause analysis solution, to enable the organization to really drill down in and again, begin to piece through and identify what are, what are the precursors what are the, the causal factors that are contributing to that event and, and affect identify those root causes. From that point, that information, that intel, can, can be utilized by that learning team um, to really review those, uh, that, that CIF-related data and try to recommend um, system designs, uh, you know, design changes that encourage uh, better, uh, better uh, workflows and, and certainly remove those possibilities that errors could occur within that system uh, that could trigger those those precursors and, and those serious events and fatalities. You know, the outputs of that process, it could be specific actions that are assigned to a worker, which again, um, if we're leveraging mobile solutions, it enables the worker, us, us to talk in real time to that worker, the worker to understand uh, what they need to do, and then to provide those updates in real time. So we're constantly from an organizational level looking at that information and being able to gauge uh, where where our priorities uh, sit and where where do we have to allocate our resources and direct our attention, and and the other huge benefit is it enables us to um, share learnings across the organization. So if there's you know a particular learning that we find at a particular area of our business or location and we want to share it more broadly to see that success replicated, we can do so by leveraging technology pretty pretty easily. And finally, at the back end. Um, you know, much of the business intelligence uh, offerings that, that are within these solutions uh, certainly enable organizations to monitor uh, their data and really to identify, you know, are there any systemic trends that we're seeing uh, that we need to address more broadly with, with more broad organizational initiatives. But really the key here is that that information, again, feeds back into that iterative process with the learning team. So they're constantly, we're constantly curating more information and we're constantly using that information uh, to really guide what we think we should be doing. So the, the last idea that I'd like to explore today involves how organizations should leverage their collected data uh, to ensure that decisions that guide their SIF prevention strategies are based on evidence uh, so we can minimize the chances that we're, we waste our time and our resources on issues that have little effect on, on SIF potential.
And what I thought was interesting is um, a, a few years ago, the Campbell Institute released a white paper on SIF prevention. And, and within the white paper, they cited um, three additional indicators of, of serious injuries and fatalities. And the first involved uh, the idea of normalization of deviation or normalization of deviance. We, we, you might have, have come across this, uh, this idea in, in a lot of, of reports on, on uh, highly catastrophic events, uh, uh, you know, over the last 20 or 30 years. But, you know, normalization of deviation refers to situations in which deviating from accepted, accepted standards becomes so common that it becomes tacitly accepted, that, you know, we, we start accepting uh, deviating from the rules so much that, that it becomes commonplace and, and we don't even think of it as a deviation anymore. The second issue involves uncalibrated risk perceptions or risk tolerance. So this really refers to the aspect of different workers approaching situations involving risk differently due to the lack of their lack of information, training, or, or experience that prevents us from driving a consistent approach. So we, we approach risk differently, and this creates those conditions for SIFs to occur. And what I, I found particularly interesting was that this idea of decisions not being grounded in empirical data. And this factor reflect the risk of organizations making safety decisions that were, weren't based on objective data. And this really increased the, the chances that cognitive bias would influence how we approach SIF prevention efforts. And, and it's really this last idea that I'd like to discuss over the final few minutes of the presentation. So, you know, earlier in the presentation, we mentioned that how we view issues in um, how we view issues and how we make decisions are often influenced by you know inherent human bias. And you know, for the sake of brevity, I'm going to argue that <clears throat> excuse me, there's three specific biases that tend to significantly influence how organizations make decisions uh, for, for EHS in particular, um, which can have an impact on our SIF prevention efforts. And the first involves recency bias. Now, this is the tendency to remember or place greater importance on events that have occurred most recently. So, you know, as a result, we, tend, we, we all tend to focus on whatever, quote, memorable event happened last. You know, but we all know that unfortunately, the most recent or memorable event is not always the one most deserving of our, our effort or, or action. And again, may not necessarily address the most critical SIF potential. The second bias involves confirmation bias. This is the tendency uh, for us to search for, to interpret, to focus on, to favor information in ways that confirm our own our own ideas, our own preconceptions of what's going on. Now, we all have beliefs of what's going on in our workplace to drive incidents. But this bias, if, if, if it's left uncontrolled, can result in us selectively filtering data to confirm patterns that don't really exist. And therefore, you know, it results in, in potentially businesses focusing on areas with the, the idea that it will address the underlying causes of SIFs when it really doesn't. And the last bias that I wanted to talk about was really this idea of present bias. So this is the tendency of people to give stronger weight to shorter term payoffs. And if you think about it, in many performance-based cultures that, that many of our organizations operate within, uh, we, we, there is a tendency to re reward progress, right? And, and, uh, you know, and that certainly can influence the actions that we take. It, I often wonder is, if that's possibly one of the reasons that 
many employers jump to disciplining workers when events happen as opposed to really trying to uncover what, what's really going on under the surface uh, because that, that disciplinary action is immediate and it is tangible. Um, but again, unfortunately, these decisions may not necessarily address SIF potential in a sustaining, uh, sustainable and meaningful way. So what this really means is that to reduce SIF potential, businesses need to improve their ability to efficiently collect, aggregate, analyze, and transform their data into meaningful insights that will help guide their evidence-based decision-making so they can control their biases and ensure that they're spending their time and money on the things that actually reduce SIF potential. Yet, you know, what's interesting, one of the challenges that organizations face is that they lack scalable capacity to transform their collected data into insights. And, and in large part, that's due to just the, the, the data volume and the, the velocity of data that's being collected in organizations now. Um, just to give you some perspective on this, um, there was a figure announced uh, some time ago that, that stated that it was a that there was about 50 or, or I, I think it was 50 giga, uh, 50, 50 billion gigabytes, I'm sorry, 50 billion gigabytes of data was collected through the course of recorded human history until about 2003. And by 2011, we were collecting that much data um, every two years. And uh, two years after that, around 2013, I believe, we were collecting that amount of data every 10 minutes. And there's estimates now that by the end of 2020, we could be exceeding 40,000 exabytes of data by the end of the year. So if, if you don't know what an exabyte of data is, think of a number with 18 zeros behind it. That's an exabyte. So a, a massive amount of data that we're collecting and that data is, is coming in faster than ever before. But really where, where companies are challenged is that, you know, we lack the computational power, the human computational power to be able to transform this data into meaningful insights fast enough uh, to be able to, to guide our rapid decision making. We just can't get through that amount of data or the amount of data that, that we actually use in our analyses is, is minimal for what we, we really should be looking at to really guide our decisions um, and, and control the biases that we face. And, and as a final point, this is why the ability to leverage data analytics engines and software is so important uh, for businesses, both in, in just general uh, EHSQ uh, scenarios, but, but certainly uh, when we focus on uh, reducing serious injuries and fatalities. You know, in, in, since many businesses struggle to synthesize their data, their data analysis approaches are, are rather descriptive in nature. And, and by descriptive, I mean that it's mostly focused on creating those simple comparisons like comparing rates over time or presenting single data sets graphically. And as we can imagine, there's only so much we can do with that information. But when we advance our technology and, and, and we look at what, what's offered in, in, in technology and software today, we open up opportunities to shift from a descriptive to a more predictive approach to data analysis where we, we take all of our data, both EHS and non-EHS data, and we're able to feed it into machine learning algorithms that help us create a prediction of what events are most likely to occur in the future. And really in this, matter, in this manner, organizations would be able to leverage their SIF data to not only really understand what types of SIF events or, or what types of events are most likely to occur, 
but also what SIF precursors are most likely to influence those events and thereby allow the organizations to really mobilize their resources to address those issues in a more targeted way. And, in, and certainly in doing so, we counteract our biases so we aren't making safety decisions that sound good, but aren't really founded on empirical evidence. And what I've done is, is just, again, provided a graphic to help explain how a, a data analytics engine would really work. And, and I'll, I'll start, the flow starts from the left and moves to the right, but really what we do is we start the process where all of our data sources are identified and collected and directed toward a single storage location, normally through an API or other or some other system integration. And, and you know, certainly before the data is transmitted, it goes through a cleansing process to ensure that you know, we have only good data that, that's feeding into our models <clears throat> and ensuring that um, you know, it, it improves and, and sustains the value of the insights that we draw from it. This entire process of data transformation and unification helps create those structured data sets that we need for modeling, for, for uh, analytical modeling. And from there, those data sets are fed into the analytical models and we use machine learning algorithms and we use uh, natural language processing algorithms to detect those patterns and to generate those insights. And then we're able to either warehouse uh, those insights for, for future access or, or future manipulation, or at the same time, transmit those to the end user in any selected device that they may, might want, which is going to further um, influence their decision-making and action. So really, if we want to ensure that we're focusing our resources on the areas that will have the greatest benefit for SIF prevention, we really need to start thinking about adopting solutions that enable us to really optimize the full value of our data. Um, and that really enables businesses um, to, to be much more efficient at, at transforming you know, those ones and zeros into to really meaningful insights that, that are really gonna tell us where we should be focusing our efforts. So that's, that's in a sense, a, everything that I wanted to, to speak to you about today. I, I certainly thank, uh, thank everyone for their time. Just a, a few things to recap, uh, some of the main points that we talked about today. Uh, the first is, you know, we know now through um, a lot of a trial and error, but through a lot of studies, you know, since the time of Deepwater Horizon that what hurts people isn't the same as what kills people, unfortunately. And as a result, if we want to reduce our SIFs, we need to focus our attention on identifying the incidents with the greatest SIF potential and really to dig into how we can address those precursors that influence those events. Um, you know, and, and certainly there, there's an element of, of safety culture that, that comes into that. And we talked about three things, you know, identifying SIF potential requires that strong reporting culture. And organizations, you know, really should be considering how they can change how they measure or define safety success to remove that fear of reporting that might exist, but also looking for the ways that they can make reporting easier. And, and certainly there's, there's a lot that software can offer um, uh, to, to, to assist in that regard. You know, we, we have to um, understand that most errors are unintentional. So we need to avoid jumping to the conclusion when we do investigations of, of SIFs uh, that, uh, that the issue was, was worker behavior and therefore changing worker behavior alone is, is going to um, uh, allow us to arrive at the desired end goal. We need to recognize how system design can create those error traps and really we can leverage learning teams as a way of promoting that organizational learning to really understand it and learn from our failures in, in a very profound and meaningful way. And, you know, and certainly if we can't control our biases, we risk making decisions that waste our time and our resources and really do nothing to address 
SIF potential. And as we explained over the last few minutes, software solutions do offer a, a lot of huge analytical capabilities that can help create those quick insights that will ensure your, your SIF prevention efforts are focused on the right things. So again, this, this really brings me to the end of my presentation. I, I, I wanted to thank um, NSC uh, for the opportunity to speak to you and I will hand uh, the floor back over to Kevin for any questions that anybody might have. Excellent, great job, Sean. We thank you for your insights and expertise. Uh, before we do start the Q&A, just wanna remind everyone of the evaluation survey that we'll be asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this presentation. Your input is important because it'll help us improve future webcasts and we appreciate, appreciate you taking that extra time. Um, if you hadn't heard at the top of the presentation, um, if you do wanna ask a question, you simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. You then type your question and click the send button. Um, so with that now, let's get to some questions for Sean. Um, first one, Sean, since many companies include lagging indicators on annual shareholder reports and similar communications, leaders are often reluctant to get rid of them in place of more leading indicators. How would you suggest we shift mindsets of leadership to abandon lagging indicators? Thanks, Kevin. That, that's a, a very good question. And I, I guess uh, I'll caveat what I'm gonna say um, by saying, um, uh, hopefully I, I didn't misstate myself. I don't believe that we need to abandon lagging indicators. You know, there, there is value that la lagging indicators can bring um, because they do give us a gauge on um, how, you know, whether we've selected the right indicator, the right leading indicators. So th there is a balance between um, uh, lagging and leading indicators. I think that there's value in both, but I think what we're really talking about is how do we shift the focus away from relying uh, on lagging indicators as that that uh, that key focal point of success and really shifting to, to others and, and really I think it, it starts with um, with educating our, our, our senior leaders on uh, some of the uh, some of the, the the loopholes or some of the, the drawbacks that lagging indicators can have and, and in a sense I think you know in my experience lagging indicators tend to be uh, tend to be used more often to, to measure success because they're simple to measure. So I, I think what it, it gets to is really try um, to engage in a, a really fruitful discussion with uh, all the key stakeholders within your organization. So that includes leaders, but that includes, you know, employee representatives. If, if you're in a unionized environment, it, it could be your, your union leadership, uh, your, your uh, both operational and your EHSQ experts. And really try to, you know, discuss where do we want to go? You know, what, what is the end goal uh, that we have in, in terms of, you know, certainly SIF prevention, but also how would we be able to measure success um, in, in different ways, right? And, and really try to explore um, what are the loopholes or what are the, what are the constraints of using lagging indicators to allow us to arrive at that end goal? And I think what it involves, it, it, it's, it's a, a very iterative process. I think it involves um, a little bit of trial and error. I think it's about coming up with some good measures and showing and, and building and, and showing the organization how those measures actually lead to the outcomes that we're looking for. And I think eventually over time, uh, you'll get, um, 
organizations shifting away from the importance of lagging indicators to more leading indicators. Um, but I'm, I'm not suggesting it, it's a, a, a simple endeavor. If it was, everybody would be doing it. But I think it's, it's really, you have to start with that engagement but I, of all those stakeholders around what are we really trying to achieve and what are the right indicators that we can measure to really show incremental steps to where we want to go. Next question for you. Uh, what is a recommended software or technology setup that can be adopted in the way mentioned here? Oh, that's, a, that's another interesting question. So the, the recommended software setup, I think what you would want to do. So, um, you know, when you're selecting, when you're selecting software solutions, the key really to, uh, like, I'll break it up into a couple points. So, if we're looking for information or, or, or means to enable frontline employees to be more engaged in this process of building the culture that we want, that that's, that's necessary for, um, uh, for SIF prevention, I think you, ha you have to look at providing software solutions and technologies that meet the worker where they are. So meaning that um, tools that the worker can use like, you know, like any other tool that they have, in their natural environment that enables that free flow of information. And this is really where, where mobile solutions come in. So if we can provide that information that they can reg regularly and, and, and easily give feedback, they can also um, access information that they need to do their jobs better, that's, you know, that's gonna be the, that wheel, that gear that's going to ensure that we're getting that consistent, reliable data coming into the, to the, the system. The other side of the, the coin that you have to look at is, looking for solutions that have those features that can evaluate the quality of, of the data that, that you're getting. So um, this ensures that whatever models that we're, we're creating out of the, the software solutions that we're using, that they're accurate as, as possible. So um, it, it means that we need to, to filter the garbage, you know, quote unquote, out of, out of our data to make sure that it's a, accurate as possible and make sure that you know we have complete records so really really look for solutions that do that i, I know I'll, I'll speak for cordy uh, cordy we have a, a tool called uh, our data quality score which enables us to, to consistently look at uh, the accuracy and the timeliness of records that are coming in um, to to ensure that we have grid reliability on on the insights that we have so if we're seeing records coming in that are only half completed then you know they obviously will provide less accurate insights than, than records that are 100% completed. So really look for, for solutions that, that enable you to really filter through and, and, and ensure the, the accuracy and the validity of your data. But then also look for solutions that can integrate with other, other ERP solutions, other CRM solutions, other things that you're using within your business to pull data together. You know, a, a part of the challenge with having multiple systems is they don't talk to each other or it's very difficult to talk to each other. So having a unified platform is, is certainly important both within EHSQ. So, so, you know, occupational health information, hygiene information, safety, environmental information um, uh, it can certainly talk to each other because we know of the, 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 the connections, but also that we're able to bring in HR data, we're able to bring in um, operational data, maintenance data that can help inform uh, where, you know, what are some of the conditions in which SIFs can occur, and that's really going to create a, a more broader uh, degree of insights that we have, and that's really going to get you to uh, a lot of good information that's really going to guide your SIF prevention efforts. Next question, 
Are behavioral-based programs effective in cultural or behavioral change? Uh, I would say yes. Um, you know, I think with behavioral-based problems uh, or behavioral-based uh, safety, the intention is always good. So the intention, and, and I'm speaking for, for myself here, the, the intention is good because we need to recognize that, as we all know, there's, there's system elements and there are behavioral elements to, to any incident. So um, we certainly can't look uh, too far on the system side with, with, you know, to, to the extent where we're not considering the, the behavioral elements, but we also have to recognize that uh, you know, we, we can't look too far on the behavioral side as well. So I, I think that there are, um, you know, certainly um, there's a place for behavioral-based safety. I, I would caution to say, to ensure that we understand the limitations of our behavioral-based safety programs and ensure that it's not creating conditions that um, stifle reporting, that stifle um, interactions because there's a, a pervasive belief within, within your organizational culture that um, behavioral-based safety is all about finding people doing things wrong, right? So uh, I think there's definitely a, a place for it uh, within SIF prevention. Um, it's just finding where that place is and, and making sure that it's, it's balanced. There's a balanced approach that we're considering all variables when it comes to looking at failure uh, as opposed to um, the tendency to, to point our finger at the worker uh, as a first uh, resort. And, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of investigations stop there. Who does the learning team consist of? Is that like a committee in the company or is it data combined with Cordy to see what other companies are doing? Oh, so, so a learning team can, can exist outside of any, any software solution that, that anybody would, would like to use. Um, so a learning team is just a, a collection of individuals. So there's no, really no rhyme or, you know, there's no rhyme or reason uh, for this learning team. What I would suggest um, if you're starting with a learning team is, is again, make sure that your focus, I would say start small. So uh, perhaps identify a particular problem or a particular scenario that, um, that's causing you a, a concern or, or something that you'd wanna dive into. And um, instead of relying on your, your EHSQ uh, professionals, and, and they'll certainly have a seat at the table, really what we're trying to do is have that blame-free environment where we can kind of throw everything on the table and we can involve the workers that actually do the job and the people that are have responsibility of designing how the job should be done so those ideal conditions in which the work is done and really have a, a really frank discussion of here's how we design the job here's here's how the organization believes the job needs to be done to manage risk of, uh, effectively and reduce the, the the potential for for serious injuries and fatalities and then provide that opportunity for those those employees to really you know come out and say but you don't understand this is how we have to do the work. And, and what that enables the, the, those people to do is really arrive at, you know, the right solutions that are going to ensure that, uh, that we can eliminate those SIF precursors, that it's not just we, we set rules that can't be followed, but we set the right rules that, can, that we know that we can do consistently um, and in doing so, re remove those precursors. So I think, you, you know, think about, you know, it, it's, it, there's a lot of frontline worker involvement. Um, I would try to keep out um, anybody that could politicize uh, that, that, that discussion. So I would probably avoid senior leaders that, that might encourage people to, to want to um, not necessarily freely share their ideas. Um, 
and and really have that conversation. And really what I was mentioning with, with software is, is software is just a way that you can use your tools uh, or use tools to, to, to give that learning team more data to arrive at better conclusions, better decisions, right? Um, so how can we, again, leverage all the data that we collect on a, on a daily basis to really ensure that we're looking at data, we're challenging our assumptions, we're challenging our biases, and we're really arriving at where we need to be uh, so we can have the most effect on, on injuries. Does this system help supervisors conduct good incident root cause and corrective actions? Uh, if you're referring to the, the a software solution, I would say uh, absolutely. There's a, a number of um, there's a number of uh, software solutions out there that that have audit and inspection modules uh, built right into them. I, again, that can be leveraged either through a desktop application or a mobile application, and that's you know some of the things that uh, that organizations really uh, really find extremely beneficial is is the fact that you know I can create um, inspections. Uh, and I can assign those inspections to anybody that has a mobile device and they can go out and and complete those in real time. And, and I essentially eliminate the administrative burden of having to take that paper copy and then type it into uh, another spreadsheet to be able to track the outcomes. That's all done seamlessly through, through the interconnections that are done in the solution. So it drastically improves um, not only the, the supervisor's uh, day, it removes some of those what they would call non-value-added activities to uh, enable the, the, the supervisor to really get to the things that really matter. Um, but it also means that the, our visibility to the data is almost instantaneous because that lag time between when we get the report and when it's put into a format that can be shared is, is if not eliminated, then, then really, really reduced. So I, I think these solutions can certainly help. In referring to... Um, you know, some of the things that we had talked about with report, you know, changes with culture, all, all cultural changes are, are, are definitely going to have a benefit, I think, with, uh, with how supervisors do their job, specifically because, you know, culture for me means that we have a, a degree of openness and, and it means that everybody has, has a goal and we're all directed toward that same goal. And I think if we can organize uh, our organizations around, you know, cultures that everybody can, can mobilize around, it's going to be a benefit to, to all workplace parties. In your experience, what type of employee safety goals go against a safety culture? Um, that go against the safety culture? Again, I think um, for me, it would, it would focus on um, those hard lagging indicators. So anywhere where, um, like goals, and I should say indicators in and of themselves, I don't think are bad. It's how those indicators influence how people interpret their importance and, and interpret how they, they do their day-to-day -day jobs. There's nothing wrong with, um, I guess, conceptually, there's nothing wrong with incident rate. What's wrong with, what we find what's wrong with incident rate is how it encourages people to uh, to see um, and interact with with the workers uh, at the front line. So again, I'll, I'll refer back to to the points that I made earlier in the presentation. If looking at the incident rate, I, I perceive anything that increases incidents as something bad, and that in turn, you know, for me, if I was a frontline supervisor, it means that uh, I'm going to feel heat from my my manager. Um, 
I'm going, that, that's going to influence how I approach things. And that might influence um, how I approach individuals. You know, in my experience, I've, I've seen, um, unfortunately, in a lot of cases where um, the importance of managing numbers in some cases superseded just general regard for the individual that was involved in the event. So, you know, an individual is involved in an event. And, and for me, the first thing that we should be doing as, as organizational leaders is, is ensuring that that person has as immediate, uh, you know, medical attention and, and that uh, we ensure that they're okay. And if that empathy is lost because we're more worried about um, managing numbers then that's definitely going to have an impact on how workers perceive the organization caring for them. And that's in turn going, going to influence their, their openness to, to share ideas. It's going to, it's going to influence their, their desire to report. And it's, it's certainly going to, it's going to influence their, their ability to engage and actively participate in safety. And we know that organizations in which only half the, the organization is, is working toward a goal aren't going to be very successful. So I think, again, is really looking at those, those points that we had mentioned today. You know, how is, how is, how we're managing safety or measuring it? You know, I would start there as, as probably a first point and say, how is that inadvertently um, changing attitudes or, or influencing attitudes in a way that we don't want? Next question concerns small companies. It says, with an example of a construction company with 50 employees, uh, that might not have much risk data in a year. They may just have a few SIFs from day to day. So then how can they benefit from industry group big databases? It's a great point. And I would say that the way that I would answer that is, you know, the, the, the person that raised the question is absolutely correct. Like there's this, there's this interesting um, dynamic, right? That as we, if we're, if we're measuring safety success by lagging indicators and we're getting, we're getting better at reducing incidents, then um, that's great. But what we're doing is we're, we're, we're reducing our data pool, right? So whether or not you just fundamentally disagree with measuring incidents or, or the effect of it, or you're one of those leading organizations that that's either getting better at, at safety, like injury reduction, or you just, you know, don't create enough of these, these data points um, to, to really understand where you are, that's certainly going to make it more challenging to understand, to, to really understand where, where SIF potential exists, but it's also going to really, um, make it challenging to, to make that business case for, for software investment. So it, again, the way that I would, I would approach that is I would say that creates a perfect condition that you should be looking for those leading indicators, right? So looking for those indicators that enable you to really try to understand, okay, if we're not getting events, what are some of the things that we can directly influence that we, we could probably know that if we're not doing them, we increase the risk of those events happening, right? And those could be proactive inspections. They could be observations. They could be BBS um, task observations. They could be any of a number of things that, that are, are worthwhile to measure in safety. And I think in doing so, you're going to build that data set. And then maybe at that point, it, it becomes a little bit more fruitful to look at software and, and how that could be used to, to help, uh, uh, to help your, your SIP prevention efforts. Well, thank you, Sean. Uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded on to our speaker. Once again, we hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey, offer us your feedback. It will be coming in a separate window, and we do appreciate you taking that extra time to tell us what you think. Uh, with that, we'll end today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Sean Baldry, everyone at Cordy, and all of you who listened in. Thanks, and have a great day.